standing service. And, uh, you know, it, it's for good reason. You know, one, these pews can get pretty comfortable in a long service like today. You know, it's, it's you, know, you know, it keeps you, it keeps you alert, keeps you on your toes. Uh, and if you miss leg day, you know, it's a good, uh, good way to get that in. Uh, but, you know, the, the real reason we do it is that we believe uh, worship is participatory. Uh, you're not spectators. The show is not up here, and, and you're the, the audience. Uh, it's something that we do together, and so it's, it's one small way that we can participate together in worship. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's also a way that we show reverence to the Lord. We're going to stand one more time, just a heads up. If you're new, there's one more coming, uh, so get ready for it. Uh, I just want to, before we get to the sermon, I just want to briefly mention something that's not in your bulletin that I wanted to make sure was uh, mentioned uh, this morning. Uh, next week, and it's, it's, it's timely, next week we're going to have a special opportunity after the service. Uh, we have someone coming in who will be doing some uh, extensive training and, and giving us some information on just practical ways that we can help keep our church safe. You know, in, in this day and age, you know, you see it on the news sometimes, and God forbid something should ever happen here, uh, but we want to do as much as we're able to, to have this be a safe place for you to come and worship. Uh, and so if you're interested in learning more about that, uh, come. I believe there's a, a lunch being provided. Bobby Joe knows more about that, so I, I won't say too much more in case I say something I shouldn't. Uh, so see Bobby Joe. Uh, she's somewhere, not here, but anyway. Uh, all right, well, let's get to the word together. Uh, we're uh, in John's Gospel, and let me, let me ask you this question. Have you ever really blown it big time in your, your walk with Christ, in your life as a Christian? Have you ever really blown it big time? Maybe it was a, a particular uh, grievous sin or a pattern of sin. Uh, maybe you uh, cut some ethical corners try to justify them in some pragmatic way, or maybe you've uh, betrayed someone uh, and did significant damage to uh, that particular relationship. Well, remember, remember that Peter, Peter took a pretty nasty fall when he denied knowing Jesus three times on the night of his arrest. What hope, what kind of hope is there? for someone who falls in ministry, for ministry failures. Is there hope? Is there hope? We all, we all see it sometimes in the news. A, a, a high-profile pastor falls. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for a person like that? You may believe in the grace of God, and you may believe that, uh, yes, in fact, I, I am still a Christian, but maybe you doubt, maybe you doubt that you could be of any use still to the kingdom. You know, maybe you're, you're to be relegated now to a pew warmer and no more, you know, because you blew it. You know, you're still a Christian by the grace of God, but, you know, there's, there's certain things I just can't do anymore. Well, that's a lie of the enemy. And that we are somehow now damaged goods <clears throat> that can't be used by God anymore. And the truth is uh, that all of the Christian life, all of this journey following Christ is a journey of grace and it involves regular repentance and restoration. That's the Christian life. We stumble and we fall and we repent and we, we are uh, reconciled, we are restored. 
And this is the picture that John gives us uh, by including this interaction between Peter and Jesus here at the end of John's gospel. And so let's, let's go there now. Uh, grab your Bibles, uh, turn with me to John chapter 21. We're going to be reading just verses 15 to 17. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1078. And once you're there, here it is. Please stand with me one last time uh, and follow along with me as I read out of reverence and respect for God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, may your spirit work mightily through your word this morning to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us to be more like Jesus. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the last time we were in John together a few weeks ago, we left off with the disciples having breakfast on the beach with the resurrected Jesus. Uh, Steve and Debbie recently had uh, time on the beach together as a couple. Here's the disciples having uh, this breakfast on the beach with the resurrected Jesus. And, and you know that Peter was glad to see Jesus because uh, we read that he, uh, when he recognized Jesus from the boat, he throws himself into the water and he swims over 100 yards uh, to shore to see him. But after all the excitement of the moment dies down, This could have been a really awkward situation for Peter. After all, here he is sharing a meal with the resurrected Jesus who he denied knowing three times on the night of his arrest. Peter knows it. Jesus knows it. Here they are. Now we don't know this, but it's not unnatural or unreasonable to suppose that that Peter may have doubted his ministry usefulness to Jesus after everything that had happened. You know, maybe he's glad to be there with Jesus, but certainly not expecting to serve him in any significant way. And maybe there were some awkward pauses in the conversation as the proverbial elephant in the room grew larger and larger with every passing second. But notice, notice the grace of God here. Notice the grace of Jesus, because it's, it's Jesus who breaks this awkward tension and draws near to Peter. Now, as we consider uh, Peter's restoration, I want to show you three points uh, that Jesus emphasizes here to Peter. The first is that Jesus gently reminds Peter of who he was and who he's making Peter to be. That's the first point. The second is that Jesus helps Peter to see what ultimately qualifies him, and for that matter, anyone, for serving him in ministry. 
And thirdly, Jesus calls Peter to a new kind of ministry. So we're going to look at those three things together. So let's start with this, uh, a reminder of who he was and who Jesus is making him to be. Notice how Jesus reminds Peter of the kind of person he was. Uh, One way we see this is in this small detail in verse 9, if you look up ahead to the passage before, uh, that this breakfast took place around a charcoal fire. Now, this is somewhat significant because the only other time that we see a charcoal fire in John's gospel is when Peter was denying Jesus. It was around a charcoal fire. That's the only other time in John's gospel we see this. And now here they are again around a charcoal fire having breakfast. It's a, it's a subtle reminder, but it's a visual reminder. The sight and the smell maybe jarring Peter's mind back to that, that moment. But we see even an even, even clearer reminder of this in verse 17 when John tells us that Peter was grieved after Jesus asked him this question a, a third time. There's no question that what grieved Peter was the reminder of his threefold denial. But there's tremendous grace here because we know that that stinging memory would be replaced in Peter's mind by a, a threefold confession and restoration and reinstation. Another time, another reminder of uh, Peter's past is seen each time Jesus questions Peter and uses his old name. Simon, son of John. The last time we heard Peter's old name was all the way back in chapter 1 when Jesus first called him to be one of his disciples. And it's almost as if it's a bookend to John's gospel. He draws our attention back to the scene uh, in this final chapter of his gospel. You see, Simon was a name that literally meant pebble, a small, unstable stone that could be kicked around with ease. This was the kind of person that Peter was. But Jesus told him that he would be called Peter, a name that means rock. Jesus was saying that he would make Peter this unstable jellyfish that would be tossed to and fro by the waves. He's going to make Peter this pebble into a courageous and solid rock. Each of these elements comes together to remind Peter of his weakness apart from Christ. In fact, reliance on self is what lies behind every failure in ministry. Behind every failure in ministry is that self-reliant heart, that self-reliant attitude. And we would do well to remember Jesus' words in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus is saying to Peter, of course you failed. You were relying on yourself and not on me. Now you may be thinking to yourself, well I've never denied Jesus like Peter did, but have you? Not realize it? Each time we attempt to do ministry apart from Jesus, we're functionally saying that we don't need him. We're denying him in one sense. When we, when we do ministry, ministry in our own strength, strength. when we try, we to, try to walk this, this Christian, Christian life, this religious Christian life, life apart from Jesus, Jesus, we're denying, denying his, his presence, presence, his power, power in our lives. lives. 
And let me ask, let me ask you, especially, especially those, those of you who may serve, may serve in some informal ministry context, in what ways are you relying on Jesus that if he didn't show up, it wouldn't happen? What is it that you're trusting Jesus for that if he doesn't show up, it wouldn't happen? That's a great question to reflect on. And for those of you who have had significant failure in your past and haunt you and our enemy, the accuser, like throw that in your face, remember the grace of God that you are no longer who you once were. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this truth in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. We all, we fail in ministry when we relapse. We relapse back to living how we used to apart from Christ in our old life. And we need to remember that in Christ he has made us new creations. The past is in the past. The new has come. And when you relapse back to your old self-reliant you, the way uh, you always used to be before Christ, you can always turn back into the open arms of Jesus and live out of his grace, not out of your best efforts to make amends or to atone for whatever it is that you've done. That's not what gets you back into God's good graces. It's his grace. It's Jesus. He has already paid for it on the cross. Now one final thing to mention here is the grace of Jesus uh, that he does this publicly. They're having breakfast together with, with the other disciples. He does this publicly. And why is this significant? Because the Lord could have privately reinstated Peter, but then the other disciples uh, would have always wondered, you know, how, how legitimate is this? You know, how, how legitimate is Peter's ministry really? But, but Jesus reinstates Peter in front of them to show that there would be uh, that there would be no question in their minds by doing this in this way. And so the first thing we see Jesus doing is reminding Peter of his weakness apart from him and the grace of God to make him something new. And this is exactly what we need to hear when we fail. We need to know uh, that apart from him we can do nothing and that he has made us new. The past is in the past. The new has come. And so we need to turn away from those times when we relapse into our old self and we need to run into the open arms of Jesus uh, who is waiting for us to welcome us back. Now, let's look at this second point. What is, the, what is the qualification for ministry here? The next thing we see Jesus laying out for Peter is this, it's, it's the ultimate, the ultimate qualification for anyone to serve in, in ministry. And notice, all three times, Jesus asks Peter the same question, do you love me? This is so foundational to serving Jesus in ministry. I don't want you to miss this. It's, it's not uh, moral perfection that qualifies you to serve. Otherwise, no one would be serving in ministry. It's not an academic degree, although helpful, and a good idea in some cases, depending on how you want to, uh, how the Lord's calling you to serve in ministry. Uh, you can have a Bible degree. You can have, you, you can be ordained and also ultimately be disqualified for service at the same time. 
It's not a consuming zeal to advance Christ's kingdom. That's not what's the, the ultimate qualifier for someone to serve in ministry, just that you're an excitable person and you know, you're that rah-rah person to uh, advance the, want to advance the kingdom. No, there's only one ultimate prerequisite and motivation for service. Do you love Jesus? I don't care what other qualifications you have. If you don't have that, you, you can't serve the Lord. Do you love Jesus? Jesus. It's worth asking here, how does a person come to even love Jesus in this way that he's, he's asking? Uh, well, one thing Jesus reminds Peter of here is that love for him does not come from mustering it up from within ourselves by some self-reliant determinism. I'm going to love him, you know. Uh, that's, that's not what this is. And, and, and you'll see here uh, how Jesus is reminding Peter of this. Uh, look what Jesus adds the first time he asks Peter this question. He says, do you love me more than these? What does this mean? Well, given the context of John's gospel and what we know about Peter, I think we're to understand that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples do? Do you love me more than these other Disciples do. Think about it. This is yet another reminder to Peter of his previous self-reliance. Remember back to John 13. After the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples that he will soon be leaving them and that where he's going, they cannot come. And then it was Peter who asked, where are you going? To which Jesus reiterates to Peter, again, where I'm going, you cannot come. But Peter would have none of this. He objects, why can't I follow you? And then he declares that he will lay down his life for Jesus. Understand what's going on here. Peter is looking into his own heart. And he thinks that he knows himself better than Jesus does. Matthew makes this really clear in his gospel. In Matthew 26 we see uh, Peter says, though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You see how Peter's elevating his love for him above everybody? Jesus says to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter, I mean, wow. (laughs) Peter comes back at Jesus again. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Don't miss the fact that Peter here, he's professing a love for Jesus above all others, but even more than this, notice he's, he's rejecting Jesus' knowledge. Jesus is saying, this is how it's going to be, and Peter's like, no, that's not how it's going to be. Let me tell you how it's going to be. Understand Understanding this context now, we're looking back at our text in verse 15. Notice that, that Peter doesn't take the bait this time. He, he doesn't say, of course I'll love you more than these other disciples. I'm Peter, you know, it's me. Of course, he doesn't do that. But no, Peter, Peter's learned his lesson. And he's, he's no longer self-reliant in his reply. Notice, notice the confidence that he does appeal to all three times. He says, you know. You know that I love you. 
And the third time, he even adds, you know all things, Lord. You know. Notice how he's appealing now to the Lord's knowledge, where previously he rejected the Lord's knowledge. He's saying, you know. You know what's in my heart. He's appealing to the Lord's knowledge now and not to his own. Peter has learned that Jesus knows his heart better than he does And where Peter previously rejected the Lord's knowledge, now he appeals to it as the ultimate ground of his confidence. So if we don't love Jesus by self-reliant determinism, then how do we come to love Jesus? John tells us in his first letter that he writes, in chapter 4, verse 19, he writes, We love because he first loved us. In other words, we can only love God if we first know and experience his love for us. John explains it like this uh, in verses 9 to 10. In this is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. There's your advent theme there. Uh, so that we might live through him. And then in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how we love Jesus, church. By first seeing and experiencing his love for us, that he would lay down his life to save us from our sins. When we know that we're loved like this, it draws love for Jesus out of our hearts. There's no other way. We cannot muster this kind of love for him on our own. We can only have it drawn out of us by the love of Jesus for us. Let me ask you, has has your affection for Jesus grown cold recently? The only solution is not to try harder, to muster it up, to put on some really emotional worship songs and kind of just stir that up. The only solution is to remember and to meditate on how he first loved you. It's funny how when we look into our own hearts, there's incredible bias, isn't there? And this is the trap that Peter fell into. And and we tend to think of, uh, we tend to think the best about ourselves for the most part. Or maybe we acknowledge that we're not perfect, but we grade ourselves on a curve, right? We're better than most people out there. This is the wisdom of our world, that we're basically good people. But this is a lie of our enemy designed to deceive us into thinking that we don't need a savior. I'm doing pretty good on my own. I'm I'm a pretty nice guy. What do I need a savior for? This is a lie of our enemy. that We don't need Jesus to die for our sins. This is offensive to a lot of people who think they're basically good people, right? To tell them that they need a savior. Why do I need a savior? Get out of here. You know, I'm doing okay. There's no way that I'm that bad a person that someone would actually actually have to die for me. Come on. I mean, maybe I've done a few things here and there, but I'm not that bad. Once again, just like Peter, we must not look into our own hearts and think we know better than Jesus. We've got to trust his perfect knowledge of our hearts. Jesus looks into our hearts and he sees the ugly truth that in our natural state, 
Our hearts are, are, are bent away from him. And we're not his friends. We're his enemies. This is who Jesus died and rose again for. Not members of his fan club. Not his buddies. No, he died for his enemies. It would make more sense to us if Jesus died for people who were basically good and just needed a little help to, to push them over the edge. And we all know examples of people uh, from, from news and history uh, who've laid down their lives to save their loved ones from some horrible fate. But this is not the good news of the gospel. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't die for people where there was this mutual exchange of love that flowed both ways. You will never understand the love of God unless you understand that you don't deserve the love of God. You were his enemy. Jesus' love for you should absolutely blow your minds that he would die on a cross bearing the full weight of the wrath of God for his enemies? Let that sink in for just a moment. It's only when you first are blown away by this love of God for you that you can truly love God in the way that Jesus is asking Peter. It's the only way. And it's this love for Jesus that qualifies someone for service in ministry. Right now, uh, we have a need for people to serve with our teens and our teen ministry. That ministry is blowing up. Uh, and we have nowhere near enough adults right now to help meet that need, to minister to and disciple these uh, teens that God has brought to us. And you might be sitting out there thinking of a thousand reasons why you're not cut out for that ministry. But let me ask you. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? If the answer to that question is yes, then you're qualified. It doesn't matter how old you are or how uncool you might think you are. If you truly love Jesus, then you, will, you can be a great youth leader. In fact, one of my best youth leaders back in my youth ministry days, uh, years ago, was a woman who was a grandmother. And she had a small group with middle school girls and those girls just loved this woman. Her name was Linda. Uh, they loved Linda and looked forward to going to her house and they'd bake cookies and do a Bible study. And, you know, so don't think that you need to be like some kind of hipster to work with teens. You don't. It's not a prerequisite. You need, you need to love Jesus. You need to love Jesus. So it's love for God that qualifies Peter and us for ministry but Jesus has a different kind of ministry in mind. And this is my last point for us to consider. Let's look at some of the marks of this new kind of ministry that Jesus is calling Peter to. Jesus taught his disciples in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commands. So if love for Jesus is what qualifies you for serving in ministry, then that same love will motivate doing that ministry. And doing that ministry Jesus' way, right? Obeying his commands. So let's pay close attention to how Jesus commands Peter to serve in ministry. We must not think that we know better than Jesus here. With uh, clever methods and, uh, and, and philosophies, right? Uh, how does he want us to do ministry? So let's look at some of the marks uh, of love that, that motivates a Jesus-reliant ministry. 
Uh, First, notice that uh, when Jesus describes this kind of ministry, each time he uses verbs, not nouns. He says, feed, tend, feed. These, These are action words. This tells us that serving in ministry is not about holding a position. It's not about having a title. When someone seeks a ministry position for the sake of the position itself, that ministry is about them. It's self-serving, and their care will always be more about themselves and getting their needs met than meeting the needs of the people that they should be ministering to. Remember, Jesus is teaching about the Good Shepherd in John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So Jesus Again, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Anytime a ministry is about a person and what they can get out of it, Jesus is very clear that person's a thief and a robber. The kind of ministry Jesus commands must never be about us and meeting some felt need that we have Here's a second mark of the kind of ministry Jesus commands. Notice that that each time Jesus responds to Peter, to Peter's answer, he emphasizes that he is to feed or tend my sheep, my lambs. This is important. The people in in our ministries do not belong to us. They're not your people. You are not my people as, as the pastor of this church. The people you minister to belong to Jesus. And this makes you a steward. So notice how when you're entrusted with the care of someone else's property, you, you tend to treat it a little bit more differently, right? Uh, if someone lends you their car, Maybe you drive a little slower, you know, you're a little bit more careful. Uh, Years ago, uh, I was an intern at a church, and there was an associate pastor there who shared this story with me about a time when he was in youth ministry. This is going way back, uh, because the senior pastor had an old station wagon. It was new then, but uh, had a station wagon. And uh, whenever they would take the teens on a a retreat, you know, the the pastor often let the... um, this youth pastor borrow the station wagon to help transport kids uh, to uh, whatever event they're going to or activity. And uh, there was this one event where they didn't have enough vehicles. They needed some more uh, vehicles to take these kids on this, this activity. And uh, they, the pastor was out of town on vacation, but they knew where the keys were. And they're like, oh, he always lets us use the car. Okay, so... We'll just borrow it. We'll bring it back. We'll take really good care of it, right? So they borrow the, the pastor's station wagon and they take it on this retreat. Well, the, uh, the station wagon um, breaks down on the highway. Uh, and so they, they pull it off to the side. They did everything they could. Uh, so they, they made multiple trips to get all the kids there. And they're like, we'll come back for the station wagon in the morning. They come back for the station wagon in the morning. 
it's stripped. The wheels are gone, the doors are taken off, the stereo's gone, like everything is, and the pastor's on vacation, this guy's like, I am dead, uh, you know. So the point is, right, when it's someone else's, you want to take better care of it, right? And this guy was mortified. I think he still kept his job, miraculously. Um, the pastor had grace. But listen to how the writer of Hebrews uh, talks about ministry stewardship in chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. We're talking about pastors and elders here, but I think the general principle is that we're accountable to God for our ministries. Those who will have to give an account. It appears that Peter learned this lesson really well, and we know this when we look at his letter, his first letter, 1 Peter 5, 1-4. Peter writes these words, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Ready for this? Shepherd the flock of God. Not your flock. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. A third mark of the kind of ministry Jesus commands is that it cares for and feeds the people. But what are we to feed the people? What are we to feed the sheep? Remember what Jesus taught earlier in John 6. After he fed the 5,000, he tells the people, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's connect all these dots now really quickly as we wrap this up. To feed Jesus' sheep must involve pointing them to Jesus. Pointing them to Jesus, primarily in his word. We could draw big crowds with entertainment-driven ministry using light shows and fog machines, but it's so easy to rely on these methods to the detriment of actually pointing people to Jesus. Drawing big crowds can stoke our egos. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not against a big crowd. I like a big crowd. This is much of the next guy. But we need to be aware of the danger. It can stroke our egos. So we must not evaluate uh, our, our, our success based on how, how many people there are. We must evaluate our methods. We must examine our hearts with the aid of the Holy Spirit to ensure that our ministry never becomes about us. And that we're feeding the sheep a solid diet of Jesus. I give you permission. If you come here uh, any given Sunday, if you don't hear me preaching Jesus, you can call me out. All right? Call me out if you don't hear me preaching Jesus some Sunday. All right? Because I need it. Let me ask you have you lost your way serving in ministry? 
Perhaps at some point it became more about you than Jesus and pointing his people to him. If this is you, then turn back to Jesus today. Remember, this is the regular Christian life, repentance and restoration. Remember who you once were and the love of God poured out on you through the death and resurrection of Jesus May his love for you never stop blowing your minds. And may uh, this stir our affections for Jesus and motivate the kind of ministry that pleases him. Let's serve out of our love. Compelled by love to give it all. That's on the wall on their slide, right? Maybe you're someone who came here today and you're unsure about all of this. Jesus stuff. But maybe, I pray this is the case, maybe you came today and you heard about the love of God for you this morning and it has pricked your heart and all of a sudden you, you feel drawn to him. I pray that's the case. You find Jesus to be desirable and you want to know more of him. Quit living for yourself. Quit trying to make yourself happy without Jesus. You should know by now that living for yourself hasn't satisfied the thirst of your soul. Only Jesus can do that. Surrender your life to Jesus. Trust him to forgive you and give you a fullness of life like you've never imagined. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that is good and true and rich and we can depend on it that is a solid foundation for us. We thank you for these uh, words of John that show us that we're not a lost cause when we stumble and fall, but that your grace is big and wide and deep. We thank you for Jesus who loved us first and loved us in such an unimaginable and undeserved way. Father, I do pray that whether we've been following Jesus for five minutes or 50 years, we pray that this would blow our minds as we meditate on and reflect on the love of God for us through your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray that as we see Jesus more clearly, as we see his love for us, and as it it stirs our emotions, may it motivate and compel our service for you in ministry. May we take the charge uh, that the Bannons gave us from your word seriously. Go and make disciples of all nations. God, I pray that we would collectively see your love so clearly and so undeniably that we couldn't help but go to the nations. That we wouldn't be able to hold ourselves back. That we uh, wouldn't be restrained in our giving of our time and of our treasure and of our talents in every way. God, that we just give so freely because we've been given everything in Jesus. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.